Hi, and welcome back to the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode 119, and today I have with me Mark Harries. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? Hey, Lauren. How are you doing? Thanks very much for having me. No, I'm grateful to have you uh, uh, jump on this uh, podcast discussion with me today. We're, we're going to get into um, a, topic, a topic which I'm, um, I'm sort of focusing on this concept of fuel for the work required. Um, and as you will tell us in a minute about yourself, uh, you have a, a particular um, uh, amount of expertise in this, in this topic. But the reason why I'm interested in this is because it's really interesting for any of us that are in any way into sport and exercise nutrition, science, sport and exercise uh, nutrition to be applied into practice. This is up there with pretty much one of the most interesting and fascinating areas in, in sport and exercise nutrition. And it's also becoming a very um, you know, strong evidence-based area of focus for for research so this isn't just a fringe area as well it's, it's rapidly gaining pace as a you know as a topic that's uh, you know getting a lot of uh, um, knowledge added to and we've covered this in numerous podcasts over the last few years one way or the other uh, with people like James Morton, John Hawley and Trent Stellingworth uh, just to name a few but also topics that we're going to get into um, that this relates to this whole concept of carbohydrates, carbohydrate periodization, um, train low, glycogen threshold, hypothesis, all that stuff, which, which neatly links to the growth and development of molecular biology and how that has grown and, and developed this field, which the previous podcast was um, with uh, John Hawley and Louise Burke, and they talked about that in their awesome paper uh swifter higher stronger uh in nature which was uh you know very much going on about this stuff so anyway um to bring this back to you mark just so you can help the listeners understand you know who you are what you're up to in terms of uh your academics and research and then we'll we'll jump straight in yeah sure so i'm currently a, a phd student at liverpool john moore so I actually feel like a little bit part of the furniture at John Moores now. They can't seem to get rid of me. Um, so I've been a student there for what's probably coming up to around eight years now. Um, and like I mentioned, just in the very final stages of wrapping up my PhD. So really my main research interests around the molecular response to, to endurance exercise, but also the influence of, of carbohydrate can have upon these responses and I suppose really that you know this really follows on from some of the great work from the likes of James the likes of John Bartlett and Sam MP before me um, and kind of continuing the, the work in this field that's that's been done at John Moore's for probably the past decade now um, alongside this probably you'll you'll maybe touch on this yourself so I've just also been fortunate to join him at a good performance, so helping to to tutor on the diploma is really exciting times for me. Yeah, well, welcome, welcome to welcome to the team. Um, our listeners will get to hear more from you, as of course do our our students on the uh, uh, diploma in performance nutrition that you're you're contributing to. Um, so just just tell us a little bit more, then, Mark. Uh, you're not just a researcher. I know you you've also got some applied uh experience and that's what i like about 
many of the guests that I'm interviewing is we're not just talking about, you know, the rocket science, you know, they, they, they're on both sides of the spectrum. Perhaps you could just give us an idea of, of where your, you know, your, your sort of day-to-day, you know, applied work has been focused. Yeah, for sure. And I think, you know, that's something that you touched on is something that we do really well at, at Liverpool, John Moore. So we like to ensure that everything that we do has real world impact within the field and within the, the athletes that we typically work with. So you know, alongside my academic roles, I've actually spent the last four years um, leading the nutrition service at, at Preston North End Football Club. So again, it's you know, it's really enjoyable to be able to be, you know, in the lab one day running Western blocks and then the next day to be kind of in the field working with athletes and trying to apply some of the information that we learn about in the lab to, to the athletes that we work with in the field. Yeah, I, one thing I tend to talk about a lot on this podcast is, well, historically I use the word context a lot and, you know, that became an obsession for me and I've sort of formulated a sort of a contextualization theory that I devoted a whole chapter in my own doctorate to, which hopefully will be a paper published in the near future. But, but my new word is relevant. And, you know, there's no doubt that the growth and development of sport and exercise science, exercise science, exercise physiology, and, and of course sports nutrition in there um, is exploding one way or the other. But, you know, and there's no doubt there's lots of amazing science. It is, fact, it is a fact, though, that there is also a lot of not-so-great science. But even amongst, you know, all the really good stuff that's coming out, not all of it's actually relevant to practice. You know, it, it's there to help develop the body of knowledge. It's, it adds to our, our sort of toolbox of learning um, where we start to piece together stuff and, you know, help to understand things. Um, but it isn't always directly relevant to, to practice. It might be relevant to, to critical thinking, decision-making, um, but not necessarily to practice. So that's kind of where I, I like to focus. And this topic that we're getting into, the, you know, the, 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 the concept of, of carbohydrate utilization to aid recovery um, and performance and all the nuanced stuff that hopefully we'll, we'll delve into and that you've been doing your PhD research into it is an area which is also associated with a lot of stuff out there that isn't necessarily relevant or is very misleading. And I, I would say that this is one of those sort of battlefield areas in our field, particularly, you know, you've got your low carb camp, your sort of keto fat adapted camps people who are questioning the whole point to carbohydrates you've got people who look at this from the perspective of you know it's an unnecessary form of calories maybe um looking at it too simplistically and how we used to look at it historically before the whole you know molecular biology um input enabled us to understand beyond just you know, the traditional view of fueling and calories and energy availability and so on is the impact that this can have on the immune system, for example, and uh, training adaptation. So that's kind of where I want to go with this. So in this sort of idea of fuel for the work required, which is one of the papers that you contributed to, in addition to your own uh, specific work in the regulation of um, muscle glycogen metabolism, um, you know, I mean, why did you 
get into this area and how, why is it you've become so passionate to the point that you've dedicated so many years to this now? Like, how did that even happen? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, like, like I maybe mentioned in the introduction, it, it really comes off some of the, the great work that we've been doing in our lab at JMU for the past decade now. You know, the likes of, of James Morton and, and John Bartlett probably started and, you know, was led through to the work through the likes of Kelly Hammond and Sam Impey. And hopefully I'm able to kind of contribute to that a little bit with, with my own PhD work. But, you, you know, I think from, from me, the, the area or this area of kind of carbohydrate metabolism and more specifically, you know, how we can use carbohydrate to regulate how we adapt to, to exercise. I think, you know, one of the hallmark papers from, from Anne Hansen in 2005 out of, out of Ben Saltine's lab was, you know, was, was really fascinating. And it, it was one of the groundbreaking pieces of research in the area. And, and really that kind of has set the tone for the past, you know, research over the past 10, 15 years now. No, that's excellent. And, you know, I think where I, I mean, I want to make a point of, you know, getting into this topic from the perspective of we got to move past this idea of carbohydrates, just a macro. It's something that, you know, we use to carbohydrate load before a marathon and have a pasta party. Um, there are implications and well, there's complexities to this that I think are less well known or less appreciated per se. You know, at the end of the day, you know, we, we, our interest here is in achieving optimal health and performance with our, with our athletes. And of course that requires that we understand this stuff in a bit more, in a bit more detail. So in, in that regard, then let's just kick off with, you know, a little bit behind the whole concept of carbohydrate periodization, which obviously I've gotten into with other guests, but mm -hmm. You, you know, where, where, in terms of carb, carbohydrate periodization, as it relates to this idea of fuel for the work required, um, how, by way of an introduction to the rest of this conversation, I mean, you know, how, how does carbohydrate periodization fit into this sort of toolbox for performance nutritionists and, and athletes? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, the, the notion of, of carbohydrate periodization really is, is nothing new and it's something that's been around since probably the, the 1970s with the likes the work from the likes of, of Bergson and Holtman when they did the initial carbohydrate loading studies. Um, pro probably the notion of carbohydrate periodization in terms of regulating more of the molecular responses to exercise and, and the training adaptations is probably something that you know is a little bit newer in, in the field but I think you know, the, the actual notion of changing how much carbohydrate we eat, whether it be surrounding training or whether it be surrounding exercise, is, is something that's really been around for, for 50 years or, or more, really. Um, and I think, like you said, it, it's exactly that. It's a, it's a tool that we can have in our toolbox. It's not something that is, is the be-all and end-all. It's going to be integrated in into a number of other things, whether it be nutrition or whether it be training. Um, but it's definitely a strategy that we can use, whether it be fueling for competition or kind of on the other end of the spectrum, whether it be 
more so restricting carbohydrate to enhance that molecular adaptation to exercise. So how did we how did we get to this point of you know historically it was you know the timing of carbohydrate was let's just stuff carbohydrates in all day long every mm-hmm. day and then let's really stuff in an absolutely obscene amount of carbohydrates the night before you know a marathon for example which is what people are still doing as i alluded to before to where we are now where i think there is now this general consensus of well we do need to be more strategic with our with our carbohydrates but of course that has well we're in the middle of a almost polarized debate about this you know with the various camps of extremists where perhaps we are sitting maybe more in the middle of you know as james morton has referred to in the past is mm. you know um uh smart you know uh smart carbs as opposed to high carb or low carb um so i mean do, do, because you're obviously very familiar w- with a lot of the research that's been up, up you know been done to this day i mean how did we get to this point yeah that's a great question and, and like you said it's kind of historically back in from the work in the the late 70s bergstrom and holtman showed a really you know strong relationship between the amount of muscle glycogen that we have within the within the tissue and actually how much exercise we're able to sustain at a, a given intensity. So, you know, I think that really kind of set the tone for, for practitioners to then say, okay, so if this is kind of, if we're seeing an ability to exercise longer at a given intensity with, with more muscle glycogen within the muscle, then it therefore makes sense to, feed as much carbohydrate as we, as we possibly can, I suppose, to kind of ensure that the muscle is, is fueled and also the muscle is replenished after we exercise. But I think kind of historically moving on maybe into the, to the late 1980s, that there's some excellent work by an author called William Sherman. Um, so, so Sherman produced a number of great both scientific articles, but also um, research or review papers. And these review papers actually demonstrate that, you know, kind of overfueling the the session, if you like, doesn't actually confer any benefit to performance. And, you know, there's a really nice quote in, in one of his papers that's probably buried quite deep that not many people have actually seen. I'm not too sure what the quote is exactly, but it's something along the lines of, you know, we should be considering the actual specific demands of the session or, or the performance demands of that racing event and, and fueling our, our carbohydrate intake accordingly. And kind of anything above that minimum amount that is required for that specific session it is, is almost unnecessary for performance. Yeah, and I guess it's because of the awareness of what's happening you know to this fuel i mean you use phraseology like you know fueling and the muscles full and and so on these are things that you know we may have been able to allude to or imagine in the past but we've never really been able to understand how much you know fuel there actually is mm-hmm. um which we'll get into in a little bit because as you as you say that you know that a problem is is that the over fueling is not is not advantageous 
Um, and as we'll now reveal, there's actually strategies that manipulate that carbohydrate uh, availability to elicit you know, numerous different effects, which is, I think, where it gets really exciting for performance nutritionists and the role of performance nutrition in the, in the development of athletes and just regular people um, and how they look at carbohydrate manipulation, which we can delve in, into as well. So, you know, in past podcasts, we've talked about, you know, um, carbohydrate restriction We've delved into that a bit, but but just so you can help us understand what what actually happens when when we do restrict carbohydrates, what are the scenarios in which we're likely to result in a restriction of, of carbohydrates, um, and and is you know wh- where are the strengths and and weaknesses or the strengths and limitations of of that approach is from your perspective? Yeah, so you know I suppose the the whole premise of of carbohydrate restriction is to ultimately perturb cellular homeostasis um and kind of this is again something that we can do in a number of different ways through you know training intensity training duration and it's something that is typically been done in the past but i think now with the you know the advent of molecular biology techniques i think what we're seeing is that actually alongside these other factors such as intensity and duration of the training we can also actually use nutrition to to do a similar thing and ultimately the goal of of restricting carbohydrate around specific training sessions is to perturb cellular homeostasis and ultimately you know put additional stress on the system in order for the the body to respond and of course, there. I mean, there's going to be scenarios where that's deliberate, but there's also scenarios where that's not deliberate. Um, so, from the perspective of of where this is a good idea or where it's not such a good idea, you know, what, what, what do you think we should know about that? Yeah, for sure. So, what we allude to within a number of different papers of ours that we've published is that we generally seem to think that you know, targeting specific sessions, primarily sessions where the focus of, of the actual session itself or or even the focus of the actual phase of, of training in the athlete's individual training cycle, that the focus should ultimately be on, you know, in enhancing the ability to, or sorry, that the focus should actually be on the focus, uh, adapt, uh, sorry, let me get my words That's out. That's right. That the focus should actually be on, you know, training adaptation and not performance. So, you know, in that content context, this will probably be more suited to earlier phases within the the athlete cycle, um, and ultimately, probably the focus will be on sessions where intensity is not as important as other sessions. You know what we know from from other research is that when we restrict carbohydrate around the exercise itself, we do see a reduction in in training intensity, and this can actually be anywhere up to around ten percent. So, you know, if you think about that in terms of power output or running speed or whatever it may be for your athlete, that's quite a significant drop off in training intensity. So, you know, it, it needs to be 
focused on sessions where maybe this isn't as crucial as other sessions, for instance? Yeah, so it's a balancing act, isn't it? Like, although it is a, it's a tool in the toolbox, as I keep saying, um, it isn't necessarily a tool you want to keep throwing at this all day long, every day, is, is what I'm hearing, hearing you say, and that's what the literature tells us. So uh, just to give us a little clue, though, as to what's actually happening under the bonnet then, under the hood, um, you know, there's all sorts of scary diagrams in these papers, um, which we're seeing more and more of, of course, um, as we get more and more molecular biology inputs into these topics. But there's a number of things that are happening when you're restricting uh, carbohydrate. Can you just give us an idea of, of some of those mechanisms that are, that are going on? Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, I suppose what maybe gets lost in translation a little bit sometimes is that when we, when we restrict carbohydrate, we also see, you know, changes in metabolism that as kind of a, a consequence of that. So we see, see things like increased in free fatty acid availability. And ultimately what, what this leads to is what we call a number of different signaling kinases. So what these do is these recognize the different environmental stress that, that we cause within the muscle. And this ultimately, like you said, leads to a number of different, you know, uh, signaling cascades within the muscle. But, but ultimately, like I said before, the, the ultimate idea of this is that you're perturbing cellular homeostasis and you're putting additional stress upon that muscle that, it, that it's ultimately not used to by you know, restricting a, a substrate that it's, that it's used to having and that requires for you know, energy production. So an advantage of that, for example, for endurance athletes would be what? So ultimately what we see is, you know, we can measure these things really, really acutely. So from just one exercise bout itself. But I think what probably, you know, the majority of, of practitioners are interested in is ultimately, you know, how does this influence the, the athlete long term? So what we ultimately see is when we do this, you know, across a number of weeks, the, the majority of studies probably ranging from three to, to te 10 weeks, what we ultimately see is an increase in a number of different oxidative enzymes that will help us become, you know, more efficient at using things like fat as a fuel source, things like that'll help us preserve muscle glycogen during the exercise, whereby when it comes to things such as, you know, hill climbs or, or sprint finishes for our endurance athletes, we're actually able to preserve muscle glycogen for when it's really needed in them, them crucial moments. And, you know, it's, it's quite difficult, really. I suppose we're, what we're doing is we're seeing these metabolic adaptations, if you like, but this actually doesn't always translate into, into a performance benefit. And it's probably only, you know, really a, a handful of studies that have actually shown that, these metabolic benefits that we are seeing actually translate into, into a performance benefit. So, you know, I think that's probably where the, the research needs to go. I think it's probably lacking because A, these studies are so difficult to, to perform, 
but but also I think you know John Hawley mentioned it in in one of your earlier episodes. You know, measuring performance in the lab is is so so difficult, um, and I think that's probably why it's so difficult to see an actual translation from these these adaptations into a, a performance benefit. Yeah, I'm pleased you say that because that's very much the the result of many of these discussions. Is is you know yes. The science says this, the statistics say it's significant, but the reality is it's very marginal. Um, and this, this typically ends up being a strategy you're more likely to consider with an elite athlete, if at all. But for regular athletes, recreational, you know, endurance athletes, recreational triathletes and so on, who are doing these strategies, it's yeah. possibly not the thing that they should be focusing on, which will develop that concept a bit further in this sort of science to practice focused conversation. So um, great. So look, we've got an idea as to where we're at with what happens with carbohydrate restriction, uh, just the me- you know, mechanistically what happens. But in reality, um, athletes like triathletes, for example, and elite athletes will train more than once a day even. So that starts to complicate issues. So what about twice per day training um what, what are the implications of that then on this situation yeah sure so that's probably where the whole area really kick-started um like i mentioned before one of the original papers back in 2005 from from man hansen this was actually the model that that they used with, within their paper now the idea behind the the tri- twice per day training model is really that the first session of the day is commenced with with high muscle glycogen or high carbohydrate availability. Now, between the first and the second session, the idea there is then to restrict carbohydrate in that recovery period under the premise that then the second session that you commence in the afternoon is actually commenced with you know reduced muscle glycogen availability. And Generally, within the literature, what you see is you see a 50% reduction of muscle glycogen when you then start that second session with, with low muscle glycogen stores. So I think really that was you know, the original kind of model that was used w- within the literature. And I think what's Im- important to, to mention is that you know, this twice-per-day model, this wasn't something that was performed every day. This was something that would be performed every other day so you'd have obviously a a day's rest in between and you know maybe that's something that that gets lost a little bit sometimes the whole area of you know restricting carbohydrate it doesn't necessarily refer to you know chronic periods of of low carbohydrate availability or or you know just kind of chronic low carbohydrate diets it's more specifically targeting individual training sessions yeah. Um, where the focus is on adaptation and not performance. Yeah, well, see, I, again, there's a couple of important points there, isn't there? Is that the role of carbohydrate or glycogen, it, it, you know, isn't just about fueling for performance. It's also about fueling for adaptations. And at the end of the day, you know, being simplistic, the whole point of training is to develop 
one's you know oneself to adapt to being bigger faster stronger or leaner or whatever it is that you're focusing on so the consequence of getting this wrong in terms of under or overfeeding carbohydrates has has implications that you've already men- mentioned here um and again you know in reality certainly a lot of the elite athletes that i work with are chronically training multiple times per day with maybe one or half a day off once a week or every couple of weeks you know um so that that brings us then to well let's just quickly revert back to a concept that i think that's that's useful information here is is the fact that you know the fuel the fuel tank within the muscle does actually uh, deplete it, you know the, the the fuel supply does reduce and that is dependent obviously on use and correlates to how quickly you're you know filling it up maybe you could just give us um, just a quick 101 on what's happening there and why you know things like the frequency of training and the impact of of carbohydrate restriction has ultimately that impact on that fuel supply um, yeah, if you can just quickly get into that. Yeah, sure. And I think, you know, something that, that you touched on a little bit there, sometimes athletes actually, maybe inadvertently, uh, are already training with, with low muscle glycogen. And, and like you said, I think if you're already training multiple times per day, I think the actual period of, of recovery in between, you know, it's it's never really going to be sufficient to ensure that, muscle glycogen stores are back to where you started with the first session essentially so I think yeah like I said ultimately you know athletes don't have much choice and sometimes they are actually inadvertently already training with with low muscle glycogen stores maybe knowingly so or or maybe not knowingly so well I think and again just to put some some context into this in terms of the speed at which you can fill up these fuel tanks and the speed at which they can be depleted. This isn't just a case of, you know, like stopping off at the the garage, the, you know, the petrol station and just having a quick fill up and you're done. Um, you know, it takes five, five minutes or so. The reality is it can take much longer, can't it? Uh, maybe because I think this is important for people to understand the relevance yeah. of this. So maybe you just give us an idea of, 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 very generically you know the the rates at which fuel depletes from muscle and sort of and the the speed at which we can refill it um would be useful i think to contextualize this yeah absolutely and i think you know this is ultimately dependent on a, a number of different things so i suppose that the first thing is actually that the levels of muscle glycogen that you're actually starting with you know so what we know is we know that as we get more towards the elite end of the spectrum, we know that these guys are able to not only store more glycogen within the muscle tissue itself, but actually when they or during exercise, they're actually better at conserving that glycogen. So what you generally see within the, the studies that, you know, are actually able to take muscle biopsies off, you know, not really the elite guys, but the, the more well-trained individuals, what you see is a, a higher start in muscle glycogen. But what you also see is that it takes a lot longer or a lot more intense exercise to actually deplete that muscle glycogen itself. So I think, you know, when you're thinking about 
how much muscle glycogen we deplete. It depends on, you know, how well trained the individual is and the, the actual duration and the intensity of the specific exercise session itself. And there's actually a really, really cool um, meta-analysis that Jose Arita and, and Will Hopkins has published for anyone who, who's interested in that. And, you know, it actually delves into this topic a little bit deeper and demonstrates, you know, the, the use of muscle glycogen during, you know, a number of different exercise protocols, how this differs in different individuals, how this differs in accordance with, you know, exercise duration and intensity. And then kind of, again, once we've, once we've finished exercise and we're looking to replete that muscle glycogen, that will again depend on A, the individual, because we know that, you know, more well-trained individuals are better at resynthesizing muscle glycogen, but also actually how much we've depleted during that session, because we know that when we drive muscle glycogen to, to really low levels, that we get you know, higher rates of resynthesis than compared to when we, we don't really use too much glycogen during the session. So, you know, that's probably a bit of a, a long way. No, 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 it's, it's useful. I, question. I, no, 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 I think it's, you know, I, I just don't want people to think that it's a pretty static process that's equal to every scenario. It isn't because, as you suggested, there are many different factors. And where I'm going with this is if you're going to consider things like carbohydrate periodization and or carbohydrate restriction chronically as some people try and do you you need to be more aware of the the needs and requirements of the types of training and events that you're doing to see if there's actually a match or a mismatch there um before you 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 can you know make a sensible decision as to whether or not that's a a good way you know forwards um hence the role of education of course um all right so moving forwards then um you know there there's there's an area that is um quite popular and that is the concept of fasted training you know i think it's fair to say that lots of athletes particularly like boxers and you know, endurance runners uh, have been into this well before the scientists were. You know, you, you get up, go for a run, you know, you might do a rocky thing and, and neck a protein shake, but you're not necessarily going to go and eat a massive breakfast for reasons that might include you're just not hungry. Um, there may be no, you know, and you feel okay going for a run. I know personally, I love running fasted, um, not because I'm trying to do anything specific it's just i don't like to to have eaten before i go for a run but obviously i'm not an elite athlete so fasted training what is it you know um what, what are the characteristics of fasted training um and and why should or shouldn't you you know get into that um would be worth getting into now please sure so ultimately fasted training what what this refers to is exercising prior to eating breakfast um, after obviously quite a prolonged fast as we sleep and and ultimately I don't think you know in, in terms of kind of the you know how this regulates the the molecular response to exercise I don't think this actually has to be fasted per se I think it more has to be carbohydrate restricted so some of the work that that we've done in our lab demonstrates that like you touched on before if individuals want to 
consume maybe a, a protein shake before they go on this fasted run per se. We, we've actually demonstrated that this actually doesn't impair a number of things really. So it doesn't impair fat oxidation, which is maybe primarily why individuals may do this, but it also doesn't impair any of the, the molecular signaling that we see in response to traditional faster training either. So that that's one thing to, to, to pick up on. I think if, if individuals do want to do this training and do want to maybe consume protein beforehand, this actually doesn't appear anyway to impair any of the benefits that are associated with that. Um, and ultimately, I suppose there's a number of, of, of different reasons why individuals would train fasted. Like you said, it might just be a, a logistical issue where they can, can fit this in. But, you know, there's also a number of a different, um, you know, adaptation that they, they might get from this. So like we said, what we're seeing is we're seeing an increase in, in whole body fat oxidation so this may be useful for individuals, like you said, weight-making athletes who are looking to reduce fat mass. Obviously, within the context of you know the 24-hour energy intake as well, I think you've probably touched on before. Fat oxidation is great, but if we're not in a, an energy deficit at the end of the day, it's pretty much pretty much useless. Um, and like I said, there's also some kind of um, molecular benefits that we see that is actually similar to the benefits that we see with with the low glycogen training itself too. So maybe we, we we need to move away from that phraseology of fasted training and because it's a bit misleading it's not being translated right is what you're saying there and it's less of a case of not eating anything but more of a case of uh, training in a low carbohydrate fed state um, for reasons you've just 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 described um but of course it's not just fasted um it's not just waking up and there are there's a model where you would also deliberately avoid carbohydrates before you go to sleep in the sleep low train low approach to this so what is that and and why would we do that as opposed to just wake up fast you know and do fasted training yeah sure so i think that kind of the whole premise of, of the the sleep low methodology probably really came from one of Stephen Lane's papers out of out of John Hawley's lab a few years ago now. And I think really the idea behind this is when we when we started looking at the, the twice per day model, what we did see is that the actual second session of the of the day, which would be commenced with with low muscle glycogen. So I suppose you could coin this our, our train low session, if you like. This session was primarily used, or the, the protocol during these sessions was primarily a kind of a high-intensity interval type session, so something like eight lots of five-minute intervals. Um, and what John Hawley's lab actually shown within, within this study was that, and I touched on before, we actually see impairments in our ability to maintain the intensity during that particular session and, and you know like I touched on before this can be anywhere up to around 10% which is quite a big drop off in, in intensity so really the idea of the, the sleep low was that we could flip that on its head and the the high intensity session could actually be performed in the late evening under conditions of high levels of muscle glycogen 
in order to facilitate the ability to maintain intensity during that session. And then really the idea then was for to restrict carbohydrate in the recovery period, restrict carbohydrate overnight, and then also commence the second session the next morning. And ultimately what you're seeing there is an amalgamation of a number of different train low methodologies. So you're seeing you know, restriction of carbohydrate in the recovery period, you're seeing, um, and as well as amalgamating faster training into that as well. So I think the idea was really to ensure that we could maintain sufficient intensity during that key high intensity session, but probably also amalgamate an, a number of the different train low methodologies. And, and what we ultimately see is the time that we spend with low muscle glycogen is actually prolonged from probably, you know, two to three hours in the original twice per day models to, you know, somewhere close to 12 to 15 hours in, in the sleep low model. So, and we're going to come back to some of that in a minute, but, um, you know, we're, we're sort of getting obsessed with carbohydrate for obvious reasons, but as I've mentioned many times, people tend not to just to eat, you know, carbs, um, they do eat food and in that food are things like fat and protein. Maybe you could touch upon those and in particular, you know, I guess the opposite to carbohydrate restriction and loading is going to be fat um, uh, uh, feeding and restriction potentially. And I, you know, I've got into this a little bit with Jill Leckie in a previous podcast, mm -hmm. but interesting to hear your perspective and particularly how that might fit into that amalgamated approach that you've just gotten into yeah and i think you know this is this is something that we've started to look at um at john moore's with some of kelly hammond's phd research and i think you know the the, the thought really is i suppose if you put it back into that sleep low model if if you're thinking that you're i suppose you're evening meal after that initial session I suppose if the idea is that you want to restrict carbohydrate in that period in order to I suppose if you like like you said put a a meal together that people can can enjoy during that period instead of just feeding you know something like a protein shake that would probably be quite common in in a lot of the the research studies that that we actually do. You know, not many people really want to do that. So I think if we can put a meal in that that's low in carbohydrate but is potentially higher in fat, I think the question then is, you know, does that affect any of kind of the the molecular signaling that that we're actually interested in? And I think, you know, some of some of Kelly's research shows that at least in the short acute term, this doesn't seem to be having any negative effects on the, at least the molecular signaling. But what it does seem to do is perhaps impair various markers of, of protein synthesis in that, in that recovery period. And um, so, you know, that's, that's super interesting in itself. And I think, you know, that's something that, you know, probably needs to be taken on a little bit further and seeing what actual nutrients we can put in that meal and how that affects ultimately what we're trying to do with this approach. 
Yeah, no, that would be super fascinating. That's obviously another PhD of the many potential PhDs uh, I'm sure will come. Um, so a lot of, in a lot of these conversations, people talk about with increasing frequency now, there is that recognition of the concept of energy availability, um, relative energy deficiency. We've had a lot of uh, discussions with Kirsty Elliott Sale about that. And in the past, um, James has mentioned, and actually, no, in particular, he's mentioned on our lectures he's done for us on the on our diploma at Guru Performance um, are the uh, ramifications of um, you know relative energy deficiency in males, particularly in you know physique athletes, combat sport athletes trying to make weight, boxing, you know MMA, UFC, that sort of thing. Um, but this is something that I wanted to segue the conversation into something quite similar, which is the, you know, this idea of glycogen availability and the concept of the glycogen threshold hypothesis, which is starting to emerge a bit more in in the literature. What, what is the glycogen threshold hypothesis and why, why is our awareness of this relevant to this discussion? Well, I think, I think really when kind of we, we started to look at this this area a little bit, the, the idea was really to just map out all of the various train low studies that we currently have access to. Uh, and what we actually did to, to start with is we looked at, you know, the, the studies that had a, a low glycogen group and a, and a high glycogen group. And what we did is we, we, we mapped out the the low glycogen trials and the high glycogen trials in terms of, you know, the actual specific concentrations of muscle glycogen that, you know, the participants were, were starting each trial within these studies. And really when we did this, what became apparent is a lot of the low glycogen trials tended to start the exercise session itself with, with muscle glycogens in a, in a specific region or a specific range of concentrations if you like and i think that's ultimately kind of where the this notion of a a glycogen threshold hypothesis came from where when we mapped out these studies it seemed that you know within a specific range of, of muscle glycogen concentrations this seemed to really be permissive to some of the the cell signaling responses that we were we were interested in and actually, when we looked at the the higher glycogen trials, these seem to be kind of always above this specific range of muscle glycogen that we were kind of terming the the muscle glycogen threshold. And also, just just to remind us how how do we even know that you know that this that this exists? Because obviously, this isn't just theory. You know, in reality, you guys are are able to determine this but you know the actual levels of glycogen and start to estimate you know what these thresholds are how 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 do you actually go about doing that just to help us understand what's actually involved in this type of research how do we specifically measure muscle glycogen yeah. Mean? yeah so yeah so ultimately it, it involves taking a muscle biopsy or i suppose multiple muscle biopsies from are very willing participants, should I say. Um, and really the, the premise of it is that you, 
the break down the the bonds between the oh sorry, I just I just no, had a message. Right. No, 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 you're still there. Yeah, the uh, sure. the wonders of internet is always an issue for doing. <laughs> you're still there. So, so ultimately, we use what what's called a, an acid hydrolysis method, and and ultimately, this is to to break down the the bonds that hold the the glucose molecules together to form glycogen. Uh, and when we do this, we can ultimately measure the amount of, of glucose within that that sample. Um, so, so, like you said, we're actually able, we're fortunate enough to able to quantify the amount of glycogen within a specific tissue. But you know, I think kind of touching on that a little bit and, and touching on the the hypothesis itself. You know, it it is very specific to situations where you can actually measure muscle glycogen, and you know, coming back into the the field and when you're working with athletes itself, you know how how are we able to put this hypothesis into you know the work that we do with our athletes, and you know, ultimately, it's it's very very difficult as we can't currently measure how much glycogen that athlete has within you know the specific muscle fibers themselves yeah and particularly in the field setting is you know i know there are some gadgets out there that allude to being able to do this but the reality is it's just not possible yet is it so this is why we we have to we have to do what as a practitioner how 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 am i going to compensate for not sticking unfeasibly large needles into my as you call them willing subjects which uh, I think is less likely for us in practice so how do we you know how do we get around you know uh, customizing our our perspective our view of someone's you know glycogen levels for example um, what are your recommendations there yeah so I think you know this really probably comes back to a number of different things so firstly probably understanding what we'd expect a baseline level of, of muscle glycogen to be within our individual athlete that we're working with. And this ultimately, like I mentioned before, comes back to understanding the training status of that individual and, and kind of using the literature to estimate, if you like, how much glycogen you'd expect that athlete to be able to store you know, at rest or at baseline. And then the second thing really comes from, you know, again, using the literature to estimate, depending on the specific session that the athlete is performing, the kind of the, the glycogen or the, the carbohydrate cost of that specific exercise session itself. And, and really, I think that's probably where we need a little bit more data actually using real world training protocols to actually understand the glycogen cost of these specific training sessions and I think once we do that I think we can definitely you know use this information to better facilitate you know training with low muscle glycogen or whatever it may be I think if we we have more information to you know apply this to to our athlete then we'll definitely be able to make more specific recommendations to them. So in, in addition to what data there is out there, and there is some, I know, you know, your lab there with Graham Close and James Morton, there is a growing 
body of um, information based on things like biopsies that you've done in the middle of rugby games and so on is pretty phenomenal. You've managed to do that in football and so on. Um, but And many other universities I'm aware of um, as well that do that. Um, but also there are some tools that we can have, like, I guess, GPS or... I mean, what you know, I'm just trying to explore what some of those other things are that, that can help the practitioner have just a little bit more of an accurate understanding um, as to what the, you know, those likely fuel levels are going to be with our athletes, which might also include symptoms, mightn't it? Yeah, for sure. And, and, and like you touched on, we can, you know, there's a number of different gadgets and, and technology that we can use, such as monitoring GPS, monitoring heart rate. And, and again, if, you know, we're fortunate enough to be able to have access to, to a lab. We can actually, you know, use gas analysis systems to, you know, look at the both the energy cost and the fuel cost of, you know, specific sessions. So if we, we, we have access to this, we can actually, you know, test our athletes at specific training intensities and, you know, map this out against things such as heart rate and, and different heart rate zones. And I think... You know, if we have an understanding of, of the energy and the fuel cost of, you know, different intensities and, and diff how this changes across different durations, like you said, I think then we can put all this information together and yeah. we can definitely make more specific recommendations to our athletes. Yeah, we just need to think, don't we? Um, think, think critically about this. And again, I guess some a lot of this is going to be more relevant to elite to elite athletes and ironically less relevant to your less elite athletes where things like the training stimulus, the quality of the training and just bigger picture things um, will be possibly more important. So with that in mind, what would you say are the critical limitations of, of these train low models then? Well, I, th I think like, like you touched on there, I suppose, you know, understanding that, the, the population that these actual models are, are designed for. And, you know, I suppose this ultimately comes back to what we touched on a little bit earlier. The, the real idea of, of training with low muscle glycogen or, or low carbohydrate availability ultimately comes down to perturbing homeostasis, like we mentioned before. And, you know, I think in, in more recreational individuals, this doesn't have to be done with you know, different nutrient availability or different nutrient stresses. This can actually be done with, you know, just simply by getting them them exercising or with a quality exercise program that has sufficient intensity, you know, sufficient duration and frequency. And, you know, I think once you start to get to that more elite end where, you know, it's not possible to add any more stress via, you know, frequency or duration or, or intensity, I think that's maybe when we can use nutrition to then, you know, put more stress upon upon the athlete and ultimately ensure they adapt to that exercise stress itself. So I think that the first thing is, is probably that, understanding the, you know, the population that this is designed for. But, but I think probably a, a, another thing that, that maybe gets lost in translation is the fact that, you know, we're not saying that training outside of this glycogen threshold, you know, we won't adapt to training because ultimately we will. Like I said, it's just another 
stressor that we can use or another tool in our toolbox, as you like to say, to, you know, to ultimately stress the athlete to ensure that they adapt and they become better. So, you know, look, I think we've had a, um, we've talked about all sorts of stuff here. We've gone down a few rabbit holes. Um, But ultimately, what we're talking about here is this concept of fuel for the work required so we're we're sort of you know at the end of this this podcast discussion now by way of a summary then you know someone stops you in the street um but you happen to be surrounded by lots of fairly informed intelligent people because that's what you phd students tend to hang around those those corridors and streets (laughs) but if one of those people prodded you and say, hey, you're the guy I want to ask this question to, you know, in, how do you summarize then and how do you sell the concept of fuel for the work required? Yeah, so, so ultimately, you know, the term fuel for the work required is, is based on the premise that when we train, we, we want to use nutrition to ultimately facilitate developing a better athlete. Now, by way of doing this, some of the focus of particular sessions will be to ensure that, you know, we really maximize the the amount of time that we can spend at high intensity, because ultimately that is, again, what drives, you know, adaptation and, and ultimate performance. So, you know, there's certain scenarios whereby we have to appropriately fuel for these sessions, whereby the focus is on high quality training or whether it be on performance. You know, the idea is that we need to ensure that we've got adequate substrate to be able to to fuel these sessions. But then also on the flip side, we know that we can also use, you know, nutrition and we can also use carbohydrate manipulation to to add an additional stress upon the athlete's training. And you know, really the, the premise of restricting carbohydrate we're using a different or a number of different models. You know, this is probably should be focused on specific sessions where, you know, adaptation is, is the key outcome for that particular session. And, and maybe not even that session where adaptation is the, you know, the key outcome for that specific phase of training. And I think, you know, there's a really nice case study that, that Trent Stellenworth published quite a few years back now. And, you know, this this really demonstrates how we can apply this fuel for the work required model in, you know, some of the, the elite athletes that, that Trent works with. And, you know, what these guys showed is kind of in the, the initial phases of, of the athlete cycle that, you know, we might be doing this low carbohydrate training two, three times a week, perhaps. But as we get a little bit closer towards competition, you know, the focus will then be on high quality training sessions or, you know, fueling for performance um, or maybe even kind of things such as training the gut to cope with such high amounts of carbohydrates. So I think, you know, really the idea is that we focus on the individual goal of the athlete, the individual goal of the session, and ultimately kind of where the athlete is within their particular phase of training as well. Brilliant. Um, that was an excellent summary. Thank you. And I put you on the spot. I didn't prepare you for that. So well done. Um, look, we, we've been talking for over an hour. I think we could keep going. Um, it's such a fascinating topic. 
as always, my plan here is not to replace what can be read. Um, I recommend the listeners read the various papers that you've authored or co-authored on this very specific topic. So I will link that to the um, notes for, for this page. Uh, just a point on that for the listeners, we've got a whole new website called We Do Science dot com for our good performance we do science podcast but i haven't been adding the notes yet but i will do shortly so please bear with me it's a lot of work um and uh, there are of course many episodes that are very um synergistic to this conversation so i'll have a go at linking to them as well um but thank you mark for for your time today um you know, I don't know how active uh, you are specifically on things like social media, but um, I will link to uh, things like your uh, Twitter account, which a lot of us tend to use for more academic purposes and ResearchGate and Google Scholar and all of that. And of course, um, um, now that you're a member of our uh, lecturing and tutoring team at the Google Performance Institute, um, folk can also find out more about you on our website at goodperformance.com under team. Um, but just some parting words, um, uh, Mark, uh, you know, if people want to learn more about this stuff, um, particularly go ahead and do a PhD or something in that topic, you know, what are your, what are your recommendations for that? Yeah, for sure. And, you know, like, like we probably touched on throughout, I think there's a number of different areas that we definitely, definitely need more information on. Um, so whether hopefully these are able to to spark a few ideas for potentially those who are interested in the area. And like I said, there's a number of different great ideas that, that are out there that can hopefully, you know, form some some ideas for people to to go into further study if if they are interested in doing so. Yeah. Well, maybe just to stick needles in people or uh... <laughs> Have, have these kinds of conversations with people in corridors. But um, yeah, it's exciting times, as I said before, uh, in performance nutrition. And thank you for your contributions to the research and also in helping us understand this, this, this topic in, in more detail. Um, so thank you. Um, I, of course, am Laurel Bannock, and I look forward to bringing another episode back to you all very soon.